Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 this morning. I uh, want to thank those who prayed. I mentioned last Sunday night I was going to be traveling uh, over to New Hampshire for a men's conference. I preached Friday night and and Saturday and then uh, flew home last night and uh, sort of juxtaposed uh, illustration in my mind, hopefully not just like in my bizarre mind, but I arrived at the conference and one of the guys that was there had been watching these sermons on Sunday morning. He had watched them on video and he made the comment about uh, basically like building blocks being stacked. You know, we're just looking at a couple of verses at a time and and unpacking them uh, and working it through. And I'd already had a conversation with the pastor about the fact that I'm working my way through Romans 5 not quite as slow as some, but certainly not as fast as others, right? I'd made that comment, and then he talked about building blocks. So I had that in my mind, and I got back to the airport, and I hadn't had anything to eat, and so I got a evening bagel sandwich from Dunkin' Donuts, because that's big in, in England, and, but it was close to the flight, and I was sitting there just devouring this thing, right? Because thats it's a Doran trait. We always blame my dad was a firefighter and he always ate very fast because you never knew when the alarm would go off. So it's just like, boom. So so we just, you know, and I'm sitting there as I'm eating there, I'm thinking, I wonder what these people around me are thinking because this thing is just disappearing in my mouth. I mean, it's just, it's like a wood chipper going in or something like that. And I was sitting there thinking about the difference between those, right? Because because the word is described as food to provide nourishment for our soul. And obviously, you're eating food for the nourishment of your soul. And I devour the physical food, but I'm very slow on the other one. Right? But it's because that's the big difference between the two. Right? Now, someone may correct me on this. I actually, I actually admit, I, I tried to research this to make sure I wasn't going to say something wrong. But it really doesn't matter how fast I eat that bagel sandwich in terms of the nourishment that's going to come in, right? They do tell you to eat slower so you won't eat as much and all that stuff. But, but it doesn't change the nutrients and nourishment of the bagel sandwich, whether it takes me, you know, 85 bites or five bites. But you know what? The difference when you're chewing on God's word is you actually are supposed to be meditating on it. And it is actually the very process of letting it seep into your mind and control your thinking that provides the nourishment. And here's sort of the irony to me. And I'm not meaning this in any like uh, pot shot way, but, but lots of folks want to eat their spiritual food as fast as they can so they can get onto something else. Right? Let's just get through with this. And a part of the reason it doesn't, I think, transform them is because they're not taking the time to think about all the ramifications and the connections and the significance of this truth. Right? That it is actually supposed to come to dominate our minds so that we're renewed and transformed by it. I mean, there really is not supposed to be fast food spiritual nourishment. It's intended to be the meat of the word. 
It's intended to be, and even the word for meditation used in the Old Testament has this, a kind of, uh, well, I just thought of a word you probably, masticating, right? You're chewing like a cow chews its cud. That's the word that describes the meditation process. We're just mulling on it and and chewing on it and drawing out the nourishment of it because that's how God's word changes us. It's not something that just sort of buzzes through our brain. It's actually something that's supposed to reside there and think there. So how's that for a justification for going slow? All right. There's a reason, right? There's a reason we want to really think about the point that God's word is making. All right. We're not just supposed to wing by it, you know, wave at it as we go and get on to something else but really let the truth of God shape and control the way we think. And and in Romans 5, Paul is laying down for us uh, the, the assurance that we can have in Christ, that we can have hope, that we can have an unshakable, invincible hope. And he's trying to make certain we understand that, by taking us pretty deep into a doctrinal kind of consideration. The reason our hope can be unshakable is by virtue of our relationship to Jesus Christ, and that relationship to Christ has parallels with all of humanity's relationship to Adam. Right? Because in Adam, we all sinned, and death passed upon all men because all sinned. So, so if you stand in relationship to Adam, you belong to Adam, then that's the realm of sin and death. But just like in relationship to Adam, you have sin and death, in relationship to Christ, you actually have righteousness and life. And that, that fundamental distinction is critical. And that's why he stops, because he's drawn the comparison. Adam is a type of the one who's to come, but he, he, he wants us to see that there are some significant differences as well. There are some things that are different when you talk about the gift that comes from Christ versus the sin, the transgression, and the death that's come from Adam. And that's where he turns our attention to. Let's look at verses 15 to 17. You can see, end of verse 14, right? Adam, who is a type of him who was to come, 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through Jesus Christ. So you can see it. 
Very clearly, beginning of verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression. And then verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. So there's sort of two categories of contrast that he's talking about. Verse 15 would be the character, really, of the gift. And then 16 and 17 is the consequence that comes from that gift. And he actually unpacks that in two. All right, so he says two things about the consequence. So, so what I want to do is just look at all three of these contrasts. Why? In what way is the free gift different from the transgression? And his answer is in the character and consequence of the free gift. So look, notice verse 15, because here's the first contrast. The free gift abounds because of grace. The free gift abounds because of grace. The focus here is on contrasting the character of the two actions. Adam's is a transgression. Notice the language in verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. And that transgression is contrasted with the free gift of Christ's obedience. It's described at the beginning of verse 15, the free gift. And then down in the, the second part of the verse, it says the gift by the grace of the one man. So, and he uses two different words for gift. The reason that it's translated uh, free gift at the beginning of the verse is because it's a gift of grace. It's something graciously given. Uh, the word charisma is what it is. I mean, it's, it's charis is grace. It's a gift of grace that came. All right, so you have on one hand a transgression, on the other a gift. And, and the transgression resulted in many people dying, right? It says the transgression of the one, the many died. Look what happens because of the gift. By the gift, uh, the, the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to many, All right? So you have you have a very different way of working. Adam's was an act of disobedience, a trespass. But Jesus, his gift was an act of grace. Right, so you have a category over here of transgression that brings legal consequence of condemnation. You have something else that happens that comes not because of a legal necessity, but it springs from grace. And actually, it's freely given. God does something in the giving of Christ which he was not obligated to do. Death comes as the wage of sin, right? It, it follows like a penalty. Sin brings death. There was nothing over here that said God must give his son. God freely gave his son. And that's the difference in the character of them. The, the point in, in his words there, notice just like he did earlier in the chapter, he talks about if and then much more. If by transgression many died, much more will grace abound to many. What he's trying to show 
is that God's grace abounds in that regard. Our relationship to Adam only brings death, but a relationship with Christ brings abundant grace. Right? The grace will be flowing in abundance. The reality that Paul's building on here is that death is actually confirmation of sin. Right? And that's, that's the human experience, right? Sin came into the world and death by sin. The wages of sin is death. So, so sin is in the world and, and death confirms that and that death is passed upon all. And so all the scriptures would say, for instance, in Hebrews 2, live under the fear of death because they're held captive by it. I mean, there's a universal reality among humans is that death is an enemy. There is a brokenness to this world. There is a susceptibility to the harm of death which haunts every person. I know um, some would deny that, but they're denying it, as Romans 1 would say, by a suppression of the truth. Right? They're trying to distract themselves from it. Trying to do everything they can to, to try to minimize what death is. Right? To, to try and sort of change the way we think about it and, 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 and try and get us to have a different set of assessments or assumptions that it's actually just sort of like a, a departure from one plane of existence into another plane of existence and, and, and do everything possible to remove the concept of the sting of death, but it is, it's universal, right? That's, that's the, the reality of it. And it's a consequence that has come upon all because of the disobedience of Adam and the sin we share with him. And the answer is in the gift of Christ because abounding grace is the only answer for the shadow of death. Because here's the deal. I'm a sinner. So if I'm left standing in my sin then the shadow of death is always over me. Right? Think through it. The wages of sin is death. If I know I'm a sinner, then I know the consequence of my sin is death. It's always going to be there because I will always be a sinner. I'm not ever going to find a way to, to remove my own sinfulness. So the shadow is always going to be there. The only answer to it is if I know there is a kind of grace that abounds so sufficiently, it can answer my problem of sin. It can therefore answer my problem of death. Right? Grace is the answer to my sin because it removes me from the plane of trying to provide my own righteousness, it removes me from the game of trying to achieve something to actually receiving something from God. So that I now have something from God, which actually is the righteousness which answers to the demand of God's law. 
I need abounding grace. And Adam can only bring me condemnation, but Christ can bring me justification. Right? His is a gracious work. I don't have to justify myself. He can bring the grace of God. Notice in the middle of the verse, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The, the, the correlation in our souls between grace and gratitude is real. All right, if, if I don't perceive the depth of my need of grace, then my gratitude will always be shallow. Right? As long as I'm thinking, you know, hey, I'm not that far from God. I didn't need that much help. My penalty wasn't that bad. You know, I think somebody just covered a little bill for me. Right? But if I actually understand that I was under a sentence of death through the one man many died, I was dead in trespasses and sins, and a sentence of eternal death was on me. I was, by nature, a child of wrath. All of a sudden, I realized how deeply God's grace has worked. And when I realized how deeply God's grace has moved in me, it's abounded, then it actually transforms my heart with deep gratitude that, that my my hope is built in Christ and Christ alone. Notice now verse 16. It begins the second contrast. And, and he does so in two ways. And the first in verse 16 is that he says the gift overcomes many transgressions. Notice it says the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now, this is, we, have to, we have to sort of just work our way through what Paul's saying here because it, it makes sense. It's probably not as straightforward as we might be thinking because Paul is having to show the differences between things, right? He's not going one-for-one one correspondence of similarity. He's actually going, these things are different from each other. All right, so there was... One, right, one man who brought in judgment that resulted in condemnation, right? One man, one sin brought judgment that brought condemnation. But the free gift is not like that because actually the free gift came after many transgressions and resulted in justification, right? And and so here's the comparison he's making. The penalty of death that we see around us, that is over us, all sprang from one transgression. One act of rebellion against God unleashed this overwhelming destruction we see around us. How many more of those were committed, yet God still gave his son. Right? Humanity had piled up transgression after transgression after transgression, and the whole testimony of the graciousness of it is, 
In spite of all that, God gave his son. The gift came while there were many transgressions that were on the books against us all. Not just Adam's, but all of Dave Doran's were on the book against me. And yet that gift came bringing with it righteousness or justification. And the focus is on what came here, right? Judgment and condemnation. What came from the free gift is justification. And, and Christ's work, right? We are to stand in awe of how Christ's work reverses the consequence of many transgressions. That he, he actually overcomes the sin, not just of Adam, but of all. Right? It is, it is actually a gift that, that provides for us a redemption. And, and that redemption is, is fully sufficient for every sin that I would ever commit. Right? It's not just the sins I committed before I came to Christ, but for all my sins, Christ's death is sufficient to it. Notice in, in verse 16, on the other end, the free gift, free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So in the use of that word free gift there, and that's why I put it, I put it up here, free gift, and down here was justification, All right? Because those are not exactly identical in the text because the free gift results in justification. So the free gift we'll see later in the passage is actually the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's the gift that results in justification. Right? We have been given to us the obedience of Christ as the thing that is the basis for our justification. We are right with God because of what Christ did. And Christ did that as the way to overcome the many transgressions of humanity. I love a couple of ways in which commentators described it. That one single misdeed should be answered by judgment, this is perfectly understandable. Right? That Adam sinned and the wages of that sin was death, that, that makes sense. Right? Because... He rebelled against God and brought death. He was told, if you eat this, in that day you'll surely die. I mean, it's clear, and it makes sense. The, the, the law included the penalty, and he broke the law, and therefore incurred the penalty. Right? But that the accumulated sins and guilt of all ages should be answered by God's free gift, that is a miracle. Right? I mean, think about, if we could somehow quantify it, right? Take every one of us and put our, you know, our sins into barrels. How full this room would be. Right? The, the accumulated sin and guilt of even this room over the course of our lives would blow the walls out of this place. 
Yet Christ's one act of righteousness conquered it all. He provided a sacrifice that was fully sufficient to atone for all of our sins and a righteousness that would cover all of our wickedness. Right? The, 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 The consequence of it is so great. And the believer finds pardon not only for the sin he shares in Adam, but for all his sins as well. Right? There's not, it, Jesus didn't just die so the original penalty would be removed. He covers all of my transgressions. All my sins are washed away in Christ. The righteousness of Christ covers them entirely. And, and that's crucial, right? Because sometimes people uh, get, you know, they, they get uh, weird little ideas. Right, to try and go, well, okay, so the penalty of Adam's sin was covered, but now I have to sort of work my way through all this other stuff that I've done. And I'm on a I'm on a you know a checking account with God. And and I've got to make sure I keep my good things in there to cover all the bad things I write. And at some point, if I'm in a deficit when I get to the end of life, I'm gonna to have to pay the penalty for those things. Not at all. I mean, the only hope I have in life and death is the righteousness of Christ credited to my account and the fact that he has atoned for every sin, past, present, and future. Right? He didn't just clean the slate behind me and say, okay, Dave, you're on your own now. I'll help you along, but you better you know, make sure you don't sin too much or else you're toast. No, Christ covered it all. Right? And being in relationship to him means his righteousness is credited to my account. Right, The free gift is credited to my account, so it results in justification. The sentence of condemnation that came from Adam's transgression has been replaced by a sentence of justification. In the courtroom, if I stand in Adam, I hear the judge's gavel come down and say, guilty and condemned. In the courtroom of God, if I stand in Christ, I hear acquitted. No condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Because it's the righteousness of Christ that is my only hope. And, And we need to recognize that. And John Newton is a familiar character and hymn writer. As he got old, he said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Right There's the gospel. It's not that I come over here and I go, Hey, I'm not a sinner anymore. It's no, I'm a sinner, but Christ is a Savior. Right? His righteousness is my justification. I don't stop being a sinner to be saved. I'm a sinner who's counted righteous in Christ. The righteousness of Christ. And that's why this gift can overcome the many transgressions. Now look at verse 17, because here comes the third contrast. 
it conquers death. It conquers death. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. There's really sort of a fascinating shift that happens in this verse, right? Look at its death reigned through the one. So you would think that the corresponding thing would be life reigns through the one. But that's not what he says. He says death reigned through the one. Look at it much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace will reign in life. So it's actually not death reigns, then life reigns. It's actually death reigns, but those who have received the gift of righteousness will reign in life. That it actually is a, a, a powerful work of God to actually take us from being under the dominion of death. Death reigns to actually ruling over death in life. We will rule over the creation that God has given with his son because God has restored us to the place that he made man as the one to exercise dominion over his creation. And again, notice in the language, because I think it's just so important. I know it may seem like I'm, I'm being a little uh, like slow and pedantic about it, but notice it is the abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness. That is, we are given the righteousness of Christ. It is not an achievement, an accomplishment. It's not a cooperative effort on our part. So, so God it puts something in us, and then we cooperate with it so that we end up having righteousness and become justified. That's not it's that actually the righteousness is the gift and it comes graciously to us, right? And that's why the language is described as receive. Notice he says, it's those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Those will reign. So the key again here between the, that Paul's been doing in the whole book, you're in Adam Right? You are in Adam by virtue of your humanity. That is where you are, and you are therefore under condemnation because of the sin of Adam and are sharing in that sin. If you're going to be in Christ, it's not a natural thing. Right? It doesn't happen in the same way that your relationship to Adam is, which in, in some ways, happens just simply by virtue of your shared humanity. Right? You, you, you have come from the line of humanity. And as such, you're under the condemnation of sin because all have sinned. But if you're going to be in Christ, it requires something that this text talks about. You have to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It says in verse 1, like this, you're justified by faith. All right? the, the basis of your justification is the righteousness of Christ that comes to us graciously 
And, and that means it's as a gift, but that gift must be received. Right? It can't be worked off. 4.5 says works brings wages. Right? The gift is given graciously and has to be received by faith. My, my hope in, uh, in salvation is based on a reception of something. Right? That I have rested in what Christ promised to me. And, and the security of that salvation is not rooted in me, but in the one who promised it. Right? That's the security of it, is that God keeps his promise. That he will, in fact, save all who've called upon the name of the Lord. They will never be put to shame. Right? They, they will never be disappointed because Christ's righteousness is fully sufficient. You're not going to get there someday to the judgment and have it go, man, you, is that, those last five sins you did just put you over the edge. Right? You're not going to get a notice from God's bank that says, you just bounce checks because the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness is not enough for how much you spent. It's not going to work that way. Okay, There is no limitation to the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. Right? It doesn't have... Okay, so Doran, you get, you know, you get $100,000 worth of sins and then you've overspent your account. And so when I get close to 100000 and I got to add some good works to bring my bill back down so I can stay inside the margin. Right? Any conception like that is not faith. It's works. I am adding something to the righteousness of Christ. And if I add anything to the righteousness of Christ, I've actually destroyed the foundation of my salvation because we are not saved by works so that no one can boast. Right? If Jesus just gives me the down payment and I have to cover the rest, then I've got something to boast about. He paid it all, all to him I owe. There's none of my righteousness mixed into the ground of my justification. None of it. Justification is solely and exclusively grounded in the objective righteousness of Jesus Christ, which becomes the gift that God will give to those who trust in Christ, who who put their hope in Christ, who take God at his word that he saves sinners. Not that he saves good people, but that he saves sinners. And so our righteousness is not in any way adding to it. And we have to recognize that. And the penalty, as I've said, of sin is death. So those who have Christ's righteousness are no longer subject to that penalty. I mean, that's, that's the point of it. Right? If, if, I'm, if I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, 
then there is no penalty for me to pay. It's been paid by Christ at the cross, and I have been given the righteousness of God. So when I come before God, he doesn't see me as, as a sinner. He sees me as his child. He sees me as one who, in whom he has taken pleasure because I have a relationship to his son. That I am accepted, to use the language of Ephesians 1, I am accepted in his beloved. Right? I have a relationship to Christ, and Christ is the one the Father loves, and I am in Christ, and so I benefit from and share in that acceptance. And it's graciously given to me because of God moving to meet the need that I have in my unrighteousness. Right? Death and life in this passage, as I said a week or two ago, has more than just physical death to it, right? Because the death, if I come back over here, right? The death is a sentence of judgment and condemnation, right? So it's a separation from God. And the life is actually tied to the righteousness of Christ and ultimately leads to eternal life, verse 21 says. So, so we're talking about the deep and, and abiding reality that if you're cut off from Christ, you're cut off from life now and will be eternally because of a sentence of condemnation. But if you're in Christ, you actually have life now and will enjoy that life for all of eternity. In fact, you will reign in life because of your relationship to Christ. When, when the glory of God's children is displayed, chapter 8 will say, we will share in that as joint heirs with Christ. We will enjoy the blessings of what God has accomplished. I mean, it, there's no doubt the full, uh, full and final sting of death has not yet been removed because the resurrection has not happened yet. And this, these chapters 5 through 8 will come to that. Right? We await the redemption of our bodies. And 1 Corinthians 15 says it's after that that death is completely defeated and gone. But the heart of it, separation from God, the fear that I might be separated from God. Because again, I come back to the nagging problem here is a conscience that accuses us because we know we're sinners and we know we're accountable to God and someday we will give that account and it won't go well for us. Right? That's really what's going on over here. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm accountable to God. And when I have to give that account, I will come up short because I've sinned against God and I am condemned. And so... Hebrews 2 says they live all of their life under fear of death, held captive by the devil. But Christ came and he destroyed the power of the devil because he actually conquered death through his death. His obedience, active throughout all of his life, fulfilling all that God demand, and, 
and passive, enduring the penalty of sin, that gift of righteousness is available to sinners who will trust in Jesus Christ. And when they do, it is credited to their account so that now there is no guilt in life. That is, I, I stand before God as someone forgiven. I stand before God as someone declared righteous and treated as such. Okay, if we're in the courtroom, I don't go in there going, well, I, you know, I'm still a sinner, and so I, this might not turn out okay. No, I, I step into the courtroom with my advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the propitiation not for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. John says, so, so when, when the Father looks at the Son, He sees penalty paid in full. And He sees me in the perfect obedience of Jesus. Right? I actually am clothed in a righteousness that I've received as a gift. And all the Father will say is welcome. Welcome. He won't go, probably going to have to go a few years in purgatory there, buddy. You're coming in, but you're going to get a few spankings on the way. Not a chance. Because to do that would be to impugn the righteousness of Christ. Right? If God's going to punish me for my sins, then what did Christ do? Not enough. Right? If, if I'm going to be punished for sins that I committed and I'm in Christ, then that means Christ didn't do enough. We ought to understand the blasphemy of that. For me to say Christ didn't do enough is to do insult to Christ. It's to trample underfoot the blood of Christ. It is, it is obnoxiously apostate to call into question the sufficiency of Christ. He is fully sufficient, and my hope is there. One of the great lions of the 20th century theologically was a man named J. Gretchen Machen, who stood up against liberalism in, in the Presbyterian church in the early 1900s and ultimately led to a, you know, pulling out over the faith that was once delivered. Uh, in 1936, while just in his mid-50s, he had taken a trip up to North Dakota to preach in a number of churches, and he, he became deathly ill, was hospitalized with pneumonia, and was dying and did die. The last message recorded from him was a, a wire message that he sent to his colleague and friend, John Murray. It was simply these words, right? He said, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it, right? About three years ago, when Dr. McCune was facing his bout with death, we're talking on the phone, and he said, the words of Machen ring really true to me. So thankful 
for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Right? You can face death with hope when the ground you stand on is the righteousness of Christ. There is hope when your confidence is in the active obedience of a perfect Savior. That's the answer for sinful souls. And that's an answer that Adam can't give. Right? Adam can pass sin and condemnation. He cannot provide perfect righteousness. He cannot conquer death. But Jesus did. And Jesus offers it to all who will trust in him. Do you know that Christ is your hope in life and death? Are you looking to Christ and Christ alone? Is your confidence built in the fact that Jesus lived righteously and died sacrificially as a substitute for sinners and will save all who come to him? Is your hope outside of yourself? Now, because you prayed some prayer, you go to church, or you did some stuff, your hope is in a Savior who offers himself to you as the absolute rescue of your soul. Jesus Christ, the righteous. What a Savior. Sufficient. Fully sufficient. No matter where we are, no matter what we've done, Jesus is greater. Much more will the free gift abound in grace. Trust Him. Trust Him. Rest in Him. Believe in Him. Because there's hope and life in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You so much that we can look outside of ourselves to a salvation which has been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. But because you loved us enough to give your Son, you will certainly not abandon us when we've trusted in you and called on your name. That it came to us by grace, it will keep us by grace. That we can, we can bank on the righteousness of our Savior. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to have hearts that are full of gratefulness for that. That that our increasing appreciation of the love of Christ would have a greater and greater effect of control on our lives. That we might live for the one who died for us. That the whole purpose of our lives would be pointed toward Christ. That every decision we make, we would make in relationship to Christ. The things that we enjoy, we enjoy them in relationship to Christ. That our lives would be offered up as living sacrifices because of your mercies. And Lord, please 
work in our hearts to make certain that, that we are resting on Christ and Christ alone. May we not be deceived by any kind of self-righteousness, any kind of excuse-making that tries to justify depending on ourselves or, or minimizing our sinfulness. Lord, it's so woven into the fabric of the sinful human heart and of the false religions of this world that we want to perform and achieve and accomplish so we can boast. We can stand on our own two feet. Lord, if that's the case for anyone here this morning, please bring them to their knees at the foot of the cross, confessing their sin and calling on the name of Jesus, the risen Savior. Lord, we thank you that it is by your grace that we can stand. Help us to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.